Welcome to Football and Society, a podcast exploring societal issues through the lens of the beautiful game. We're covering topics including the ethics of gambling sponsorship, the lived realities of female footballers and class dynamics among hooligans and ultras. This week, we're looking at the relationship between politics and football in Colombia. The Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, known as the FARC, were formed in 1964, and for over half a century they were locked in a gruelling, bloody struggle with Colombia's government. As a recent study has highlighted, the Colombian authorities attempt to use the national football team as a means of unifying its citizens against the perceived threat of the FARC. Peter Watson describes how successive Colombian presidents presented the FARC as the significant other, threatening a sense of national unity, symbolising what he calls Narcolombia, the dark and notorious world of drug trafficking, violence and criminality. The FARC was also associated with communism. Early on in the national football team's history, a draw with the Soviet Union in the 1962 World Cup was heralded as a triumph over Colombia's communist foes, with one magazine describing the draw as the most glorious page of Colombian sports in history. In later years, Colombia's political and criminal feuds had a direct and sinister impact on events on the football pitch. Andres Escobar, who scored an own goal during Colombia's World Cup campaign in 1994, was murdered by men with cartel links on his return to Colombia, a tragedy that rocked the footballing world. 20 years later, as a new national narrative was emerging during peace negotiations between the FARC and the government, President Juan Manuel Santos was using football as a bridge and means of conciliation to incorporate the FARC back into the idea of a national art. Peter Watson is a teaching fellow at the University of Leeds in the Spanish, Portuguese and Latin American Studies Department. He did his PhD at the University of Sheffield, researching how football was deployed in Colombia towards nation building during the Santos presidency. We're delighted to have him join us today to discuss his research. Pete, welcome and thank you for joining us. Now, thanks very much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Can we begin by asking what inspired you to undertake this particular research project? Why were you interested in looking at this for your PhD? Sure. Um, so actually, it kind of all goes back to when I was 12, I suppose, really, when my, my father got a job in the Colegio Colombo Britannico in, in Cali, um, in Colombia. And uh, we moved we moved to Colombia. We lived there for four years. And uh, that was a pretty, pretty uh, hectic time. I think we could say euphemistically in Colombia, that was the years of Escobar. Uh, that was the years of the drug cartel wars and that, and that kind of thing going on. But, but football was very much uh, on the up in Colombia. It was providing a bit of an alternative narrative. It was providing a bit of, a, of an escape valve or a palliative for a lot of the awful things were going on. You had the kind of great Colombian generation of the likes of Valderrama, Neguito and Andres Escobar, who you mentioned in the, in the introduction. Uh, and Colombia, you know, finally qualified for the first time in the World Cup uh, in 1990 for the Italian Aumenta tournament. Um, so a lot of the a lot of my early memories, I suppose, you know, about Colombia were about football. You know, that was a really a, an easy way for me to integrate into a friend group. It was very much part of the national narrative. It was something that I was allowed to see on TV. And I always had that interest in in Latin America, in Colombia, particularly as I kind of went through school years, I did Spanish at university and then taught Spanish for quite a few years. And then really just had the idea to go back, do a master's. And I kind of fell into it. I was very, I was very lucky to, to be able to work with David Wood, 
who was a lecturer at the University of Sheffield, specialises in, in Peruvian um, sport and culture, has done a lot on women's football. And in, in 2014, I realised that there'd been a lot of work done on sporting nationalism in Argentina, in Peru, in, in Uruguay and Brazil, but Colombia really was lacking. So, you know, due to my past, due to the 2014 World Cup, due to that new narrative that was very much following along with, due to, you know, getting in touch with a lot of my Colombian friends who were, who were talking very excitedly about, about the chances for, for Colombia doing very well, it, it all kind of fell, fell into peace. And the, the aspect of FARC particularly, when, you know, suddenly you see these people have been public enemy number one for the last few decades, suddenly wearing Columbia football shirts and being on TV professing their support for the national team. Uh, this was a, a really big change. And although this, this particular article that we're discussing this evening wasn't really uh, a central part necessarily, it wasn't about the FARC and how they were, you know, um, the, you know what was specifically happening with the FARC all the way through the, the, the PhD, which was about the whole nation-building project using football that, that Santos was putting together. There were so many little interesting anecdotes and so many interesting things going back in history that I felt that they really kind of deserved a little bit more of a of an article length appraisal. So yeah, that's that's how it all came to be, really. Well, people are very glad you wrote it, mate, because it's an absolutely brilliant piece of work. Um, an incredible, incredibly interesting read. Um, the FARC, we move on to them, they were active, I mean, you know, between 1964 and 2017 to say that the inactive now i don't know if that's necessarily correct um can you give our listeners a brief overview of how and why they formed and what their objectives or ideology was now obviously that uh, that evolved over time right but ultimately just a kind of brief summary i suppose of what you what the you know on paper hope to achieve yeah of course yeah i mean i suppose that dealing with the are they inactive i suppose that they're active in two ways still they're active as a political party they've slightly changed their name they've still got the the farc letters um but they've they've changed the wording to be you know to to move away from that kind of slightly um that that polit that, that kind of terrorist past or you know how it's been seen in the national narrative but there's also a kind of a splinter group who've returned to distancey who have gone back to to arms who are you know probably contesting several areas uh, for control with other kind of terrorist organizations second generation paramilitary groups and and various other kind of drug cartels like the Clandel Golfo so so there are two there are two parts of the fight but in in the to go back to the start really we, we kind of go back to 1948 really which is when a liberal politician called Jorge Elias Gaitan was murdered in Bogota and this was really seen as being the start of Colombia's violence. A lot of uh, Colombian historians in particular see it as being the, the root cause, even though there have been a lot of political um, partisan struggles militarily throughout the, through independence into the 20th century. But La Violencia is seen as a starting point. And really you get a period of internecine violence uh, between uh, conservatives and liberals, uh, killing each other in the countryside largely. And eventually there is a political accommodation between the elites of the two parties who realize that things have really got out of control and they create a kind of political resolution, a kind of pact between gentlemen, uh, which they call the National Front, which leads there to be kind of a turn, you know, you after us, the Conservatives and Liberals, then back to the Conservatives again for the next four years. And what this does is it marginalizes most of the of the other political um, political parties, particularly the, the more radical left. 
which the kind of liberals had slightly kind of tried to accommodate for quite a long time, you know, in the 1940s and 50s and so on. So some of these particular communist groups who had been part of the liberal struggle um, set up these kind of what are called republicas in um, parts of the country. So the most famous of these is one called Marquetalia, which is many, which is where many of the, the most famous FARC leaders, including Manuel Marolanda, end up being. And they're largely kind of living their own little life in the countryside, ruling their own, these little kind of um, communities, I suppose. The problem with this is that this is kind of shortly after the um, the, the Cuban Revolution, and obviously America is is has one you know one eye or probably two eyes very closely on Latin America is very worried about any potential uh, seeds of communist revolution being sown across the continent, and they really see this as being present in Colombia, and the Colombian elites had largely been allies of the U.S. They'd they'd sent troops to fight in the Korean War. And eventually American generals are sent to Colombia to analyze the threat. And they realize that these Republicans are quite a big threat. And, you know, in 1964, the Colombian army launches an attack on Marquetalia. Uh, it's something like 16,000 troops against 48 armed fighters, or at least that's the legend of it. The armed fighters escape in the confusion and then eventually form the FARC. So really the FARC, in terms of its, of its identity, its political identity, it's, it's communist in nature with a kind of Maoist leaning of anything. Um, there is a very strong emphasis on, on rural issues, particularly land reform of land re redistribution, um, largely fighting for agronism and anti-imperialism, um, you know, basically more rights and, and political representation for the poor farmers who really have been excluded from any political um, representation or any political influence for, you know, the entirety of Colombia's history. And arguably, it's, it's very strongly still the case. Um, so you kind of have this organization that is largely quite sporadic. It's quite uh, isolated. It's not a particular threat to the state for a long time until they discover uh, the drug trade. And this helps them to, to strengthen, to build up their numbers, to become more of a threat. Um, they, they start in the 90s to be able to attack um, uh, some of the more isolated rural capitals of the kind of Amazonian departments, particularly in Valpez in I think 1997 or 98, they attacked Mito, which seemed a bit of a turning point. And they probably grow to about 18,000 fighters at their peak. Uh, there are various attempts to have, I suppose, a political side to it. But in the mid 80s, a kind of the Union Patriotica, the UP, is formed with some FARC participation. They do very well in the 1985 elections, but there is a political genocide uh, led by um, you know, I suppose, right, right wing forces. Um, there's a genocide of around about 4,000, 6,000 members or representatives of the UP, including their leader, Jaime Pardoleal. And this kind of ends the FARC as a kind of a political entity in terms of represent, representation. And then they continue with the armed struggle. There are various attempts for peace processes. Uh, these all fail for various reasons, which we don't really need to go into. But really, by, by 2012, at least, or 2011, when the peace talks with Santos start, the FARC are really reeling after eight years of the Alvaro Uribe government, which has really reduced their effectiveness, which has had several very spectacular successes on some of their leadership uh, block. Uh, and the FARC are really kind of forced into a corner to, to negotiate at that point. So that's what leads to, to the peace talks. And then this leads to... Uh, you know, after the, the peace agreement is signed to the FARC becoming a political party. But then in 2019, as I said, some of the leaders decide that the peace uh, accords aren't being implemented and, and return to 
to to armed conflict. Yeah, thank you for that, Pete. That's a brilliant summary of what must be an incredibly complex picture. And as you noted in the article as well, um, you were talking there a bit about drug cartels. And in the article, you talk about how they infiltrated Colombian football. Was that purely a case of demonstrating status, a kind of symbol of power? Or were there actually practical reasons why they would do that or political motives even? Um, not necessarily political motives. I think that politically the cartels were able to influence politics with the money that they had. Um, certainly, I mean, Pablo Escar very famously became a deputy in the Senate, appeared on one infamous occasion, uh, had a very public um, uh, denunciation by, by the Justice Minister, Rodrigo Lara Bonilla, who would be the, the politician that would actually first really in the public eye uh, denounce the, the, the presence of uh, hot money of cartel money in many of Colombian football clubs. And actually that led to him being assassinated in, in 1984. Um, but no, so certainly it wasn't really, I suppose, a political move to, to, to being involved in, in football clubs. It certainly was one of, of kind of entering the social elite, of gaining social capital. I think you have to see that Colombia is a very stratified society. It's highly, you know, there are a lot of very old families of old kind of caciques, these kind of political chiefs and people have known them and, you know, all the kind of uh, landowning farming, farmers and, and families have been very well established. There's a kind of a tradition of, you know, not necessarily fun, uh, son following father in, in, in politics. There's a lot of examples of it, of certain political parties and certain politicians and families remaining there. And that's very much the case with industry and with, those kind of social elites as well. So, so I think that you know joining or, or putting money into these football clubs was very much a way of getting this kind of social acceptance, of social legitimizing, and of actually kind of putting into practice this this money that they'd accrued and trying to find an outlet for it, which could be, I suppose, to some extent hidden, but also convey a sense of legitimacy. And it and it's used in various different ways. Um, for example, Pablo Escobar who, um, although it's kind of, it's, it's slightly controversial, many people say he was a supporter of Deportivo Independiente Medellin, others say he was much more of a Nacional fan, but, you know, the likelihood is that money was probably going into, into both clubs, um, but he also was using, um, I suppose, his money for buy, buying support in, in the kind of poorer areas of the community, so he's building football pitches, there's a very famous photo of him you know, with a football in his hands, opening a pitch. And I think the lighting was, was, was part of that. You know, he builds hospitals, he builds, he builds schools, he's, he's putting money in that way. Um, it's a little bit the same with the Rodriguez Orejuela brothers in Cali, who, you know, have, you know, had invested money in a, in a kind of pharmaceutical company. I think it was La Rebaja, uh, kind of a, a boots-like type company. Um, and again, they were doing the same thing. They tried to get into business and then football was a, was a logical place. And actually, you know, they became, uh, you know, enveloped in the America de Cali team, but actually they had tried to get into Deportivo Cali. Um, but Alex Goriev, one of the directors, had been had been one of the few people to turn them down, um, you know, due to, you know, rumours of where this, this money had come from. But in lots of ways, you know, they suddenly, I think that football was just another very, very propitious business. It, it conveyed a lot of social status. It got a, little, a lot of adulation given the social currency of football in the country. And particularly for, you know, there is a really big surge in success of Colombian clubs who, you know, in kind of continental terms have been largely irre irrelevant since, 
1944 in the El Dorado League. You know, hardly any of the clubs have done well in the Copa Libertadores. Deportivo Cali, I think, have got to the final once. Um, but suddenly, with this injection of money, you see America de Cali suddenly buying you know, some of the better South American players at the time, like Gareca and Roberto Cabañas, and, and, and suddenly every, and the, whole, the whole situation changes. Suddenly, Colombian football has the spectacle again. It has, uh, it has excitement again. It has great players. It has success finally emerging. And I think that the, the drug cartels, to a large extent, are able to kind of benefit from that kind of uh, adulation or currency or reflected glory that their involvement certainly brought them in, in those particular cities where football was very much the kind of the representation of the city pride and, and how they kind of, I suppose, battled for, for kind of um, you know, national glory against the other cities in a very regional, in a very regionalised country. The power of football, Servi, um, you mentioned that in the article. Could you expand on that and explain whether he cooperated football because of this, um, Servi, or did his use of football as a unifying force, did it, did it predate the Servi? Yeah, it predated it. I think that um, there was a great awareness of the power of football in the country anyway. And I think that if you, if you look back to Sansa's speeches, you know, it appears very early on as being something that's important to him. I mean, I actually had the chance to speak to his director of communications when I was doing the uh, when I was doing the fieldwork research in Bogota, and you know, he said, "Yeah, there's without doubt, Santos is the person who who spoke about football a great deal more than anyone else. He always saw it as being something that was unifying, that had the kind of values that he was wanting to instil." But they, that was very much alongside the, the peace project, this kind of idea of national unity and seeing football is one of the few territories that all kind of Colombians would kind of rally behind or at least see as a, a slightly more likely territory to accept the kind of political messages he was trying to do. So there was always that awareness of what sport could do. And I think that there was very much a case of saying sport is one of the few areas that we can be proud of in Colombia. You know, the, this national success is a few and far between in Colombia. Um, so anytime there was any sporting success, whether that was, you know, boxing or cycling or, or, um, or football or, or athletics, or whatever it might be, that was going to be used to promote the same type of message. So football was kind of there anyway. But but what this this particular survey did, so the survey is called Power of Football. It's, it's produced in 2014. Um, but it's actually part of a wider process that itself is very significant, which is this 10-year plan for security, comfort and coexistence in Colombia football. And this was basically an ongoing process that had started really in the Uribe years of trying to find a solution for fan-related violence in Colombia, which had become an increasing problem. Um, and unlike some other countries where I think that there had been a, a bit of more of an emphasis towards punishment and sanctioning and trying to find stricter measures, they were there. But there was also an ongoing voice of people who were more intent on seeing you know, a pedag uh, you know, place for the fans to have a voice and also trying to promote pedagogies that actually solved some of the problems that were the root cause of this violence. So that was a very common undercurrent. And actually it'd been started by uh, a kind of religious figure called Padre Alirio and an actual friend of mine called Alirio Amaya, who has worked very hard with lots of fan groups to, to try and promote this process. So that was there already. And then one of the interesting things is that because the fans have had a little bit of a say, they, they kind of, they were, they were already organising and creating projects that they called Barismo Social. So the Barras are like the fan groups and Barismo Social is, I suppose, social work for the Barras. So they were trying to, you know, create small entrepreneurship. They were trying to have 
education sessions. They were trying to reduce the violence. They were trying to create opportunities for some of the people who came from particularly difficult um, backgrounds. And because of this, this organisation, they were able to influence to some extent some of the, the negotiations with the government, which is, again, quite unusual. The fact that the government were going to fans to say, How, what do you think we need to do? How can we improve the, the policing on, and security around football? So this was a process that was going on. And the power of football uh, survey was part of um, the next stage of this. And the, the interesting facet of this bit was that they actually involved some NGOs um, who were working with Sport for Development and Peace. And again, Colombia is actually one of the world leaders for this. They developed a Football for Peace methodology in, in Medellin shortly after the death of Andres Escobar, or the murder of, of Andres Escobar, using you know, various processes around football, but having mixed teams of girls and boys and girls having to score the first goal, but also involving discussion. So the, 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 the people playing would be discussing what their aims for the game were, how it should be scored in terms of coexistence objectives. Um, and then there would be a, a discussion at the end to see who, you know, who had scored what, depending on how well they'd shaken hands with or congratulated someone or accepted that it wasn't a foul or whatever it might be, you know, all these kind of these things that would would have would develop to reduce kind of con or to add to conflict resolution strategies, and that that's kind of passed globally now. The the chap that that you know started that guy called Jurgen Griesbeck is in charge of street football world. So Colombia has this this strong sport for development piece um, pass, and it was coming into I suppose Colombian institutions through a, a game called Colombia, which had much the same methodology. So there's increased awareness in the Colombia Joven, the Colombia Youth Ministry, the Col Deportes, which is the administrative department for sports. And so there's a kind of convergence of various different, different institutions. And finally, a kind of institutional articulation, which is often very lacking in Colombia, where a lot of these practices of, you know, what fans are doing, what NGOs are doing, what certain government ministries are doing. And they, they conduct this survey, and it, I suppose it ratifies the power, the power of what football is in Colombia, which had often just been this kind of, this kind of almost mythic qualities that had been attributed to it. But mm. instead of it just being, oh, everyone loves football, it just brings everyone together. They went to um, the Afro-Colombian communities. They went to indigenous communities. They talked with women. They talked with women and they talked with the, the Barras all around the country in about in 13 kind of departments where, where football is played. Um, you know, they involved experts, they involved referees, former players, journalists, uh, academia, um, and and the, the, so the power of football study ratified a lot of what was thought. And, you know, there were some really interesting figures. I think that something like 94 percent of people interviewed said that football was either important or very important. I think it's 96 percent of people see football as or the national team as a symbol for integration. So this kind of this public positive. Uh, this public policy really ratifies a lot of what Santos has been saying, what had kind of been going on with um, football in a slightly ten tentative way in governmentally and a, and a little bit more strong way in uh, with the NGOs and puts it forward as being a project that can be applied to, you know, macro, micro, meso and micro levels all across Colombia to identify various social problems that have been kind of fragmenting Colombia as a, as a nation. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's been, you know, it's, it's a, a thing that should have been used a lot more. It wasn't implemented or hasn't been implemented as much as it should have been. 
but certainly has become a blueprint for certain cities where it has been put into practice quite a lot. It certainly has, uh, the fans are very keen on it because it gives them a lot of benefits. It, it gives them a lot more voice. Um, and I think that it's often looked to uh, by some of the institutions as being an indication of why football can work as a kind of fairly cost-effective, you know, uh, easy site for encounter where the kind of rules are kind of accepted and people can kind of have fun. So, so that survey was, you know, quite significant in lots of ways. It probably didn't influence Santos's policy as much as it should have done. It probably should have been implemented a lot more. But certainly it's very, very much indicative of an ongoing movement in Colombia to see football as being a very valid solution for a lot of a lot of its problems, and particularly by the government who were, you know, right at the forefront of this. That's incredibly inspiring. And you can imagine kind of the amount of work put into that because you describe in your article how Colombia is more a mosaic of, of regions and, and to have that kind of coordinated effort. It's incredible, really. You mentioned another campaign that had more short-term goals, I guess. It was a campaign by the Ministry of Defence in the run-up to the 2014 World Cup, so the World Cup in Brazil, of course. Um, and the campaign encouraged the FARC's fighters to lay down their weapons to support the national side and use football as a military tactic to undermine guerrilla resolve. To what extent do you think this was effective? on the ground rather than just in terms for example of PR was it just a publicity stunt or did that actually have some consequences yeah it's 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 difficult to know the the impact in numbers I, I haven't been able to find out how many people um you know who demobilized was specifically because of that I suspect that you probably would find that at that point, you know, there's only the, the, the peace process has, has been going on for two years. A lot of the FARC are waiting to see how that goes. They thought, I think a lot of them thought that there was the potential for that to work anyway. So I think a lot of them are waiting and seeing. But no, the, the campaigns are really interesting. I mean, there's, there's actually two of them. There was one in um, 2011 uh, before the under 20 World Cup in Colombia where you know, there's a kind of a shot of a lot of the Colombian footballers signing footballers, and then they're they're put in a helicopter, taken over the kind of vast Colombian mountainous jungle areas, and these balls are thrown from the from the helicopters to supposedly be collected by the FARC. So you have this very really interesting change from you know bombs being dropped to footballs being dropped. So that was interesting. And the second campaign was, like you say, before the 2014 World Cup. And it really involved, you know, all kinds of Colombians from all over the country, from, you know, very recognised as being Indigenous Colombians or Afro-Colombians or, uh, you know, I mean, there were some famous footballers, there were radio presenters, there were even the police, the military, and they're all kind of, they've all got an empty seat beside them and they're kind of packing the seat saying, come on, get a yero, come and watch the game with us, wouldn't it be great? I mean, this is very much part of a rebranding exercise for the, for the, for the, for the country as a whole. There is a, a strong... There is a strong sense of nation branding that had been going on since the Uribe years from really 2005. There's a, a, a campaign called Colombia is Colombia is passion, Colombia is pasión. And so Colombia are very aware of the benefits of branding, of advertising, of creating a much more positive image. And this happens a lot in tourism uh, and it's directed to some extent to, to remedying Colombia's very negative uh, external image, but it's also very much directed in terms of creating better citizens and improving Colombians' opinions of themselves and raising patriotic pride. So this is very much a continuation of a branding strategy and also one that would improve the military as well. 
the military, let's remember, you know, have been implicated in a lot of a lot of human rights issues during the conflict, most infamously during the Alvo Riva years with the false positive scandal where various uh, you know, innocent people were offered jobs, were taken to the countryside and then were murdered by the by the army and dressed up to look like FARC soldiers. Um, and that, that the kind of impact of that still rumbling on. So so it's, there's a kind of a dual process. But I think one of the most important things that, that that campaign does do is that it's, again, part of this terrain of trying to create an image of the FARC as potentially being welcome in certain circumstances. I think that in lots of ways, you know, the people who are demonised or were demonised from the FARC were very much the leaders and, you know, what the FARC as an organisation, as a rebel army, as a terrorist group were doing. But in lots of ways, it's slightly easier to forgive the, the foot soldier who may well have been, you know, co-opted into the into the FARC, you know, when he's 12, 13, 14, who was a poor farmer, son who didn't really have any, or daughter who didn't really have any other options, who joined because he didn't know what else to do. And so it's slightly easier to welcome them back. And I think that if the peace process was going to be successful, because Santos is aware of the fact that 50 years, and particularly the last 10, you know, they've been public enemy number one, seen as being narco-terrorists and the root of all evil. They have to create ways in which the FARC can be reintegrated, reincorporated in, in certain ways, in acceptable ways. And I think that this idea of watching football together, knowing that the FARC are interested in football, knowing that, you know, there's been stories of some of the prisoners who have been kidnapped by the FARC have, have been listening to the radio of you know, football matches on commentary with their, their kind of FARC in uh, prisoners. So, so, so there, is a, there is a grounds for that. So it's difficult to say how effective it is. I actually spoke to a former FARC uh, guerrillero who had, who had demobilised and, um, and he was saying that he'd seen the campaign. It, it didn't really... Um, make him want to to demobilize because he knew that there were ways that they were going to be able to watch and, and follow the football anyway. Um, so you know it wasn't going to suddenly be the reason for them to go. But he said he he, he did say it was interested in it. Um, he said that actually there was one game in which uh, they were able to to they were supposed to be on a mission, but they actually managed to convince their their kind of leader to postpone it for another day so they could watch the the match. So. You know, it was something they're aware of. I, I don't know how successful it was necessarily in terms of demobilising, but I think there were other strategies at play that, you know, that are equally important. Yeah, and I think you'd always be suspicious of um, a campaign run by a Ministry of Defence, right? Um, Absolutely. The referendum on the Santos, I guess, was a failure and that the peace deal was rejected by voters, I mean, albeit um, only marginally at 50.2% not in favour. Um, has the current regime of Duque Marquez, um, who was against the peace deal, continued to use football as a national unifier? He certainly attempted to. He's struggled, though. And again, that's probably for various reasons. Uh, I think that there is, there is. I mean, Colombia is, is quite divided. You know, it's, well, very divided, let's be honest. It's pretty much 50-50, those who supported the peace against and those who didn't. The Uribistas, of whom Duque is, uh, is seen by many as his puppet, as his, as his kind of political, um, you know, kind of uh, voice, I suppose. That Uribe can't be president anymore, so he's found someone to do the job for him. Uh, and again, the people who are in favour of, of, of peace. So there's very much a 50-50 split to start with. So again, football will provide a terrain for anyone potentially to be able to manipulate. A lot of uh, Latin American scholars and particularly a Brazilian woman called Simone Laud Guedes, who unfortunately died a couple of years ago, came up with this great idea of a zero institution, which football is seen as being kind of this empty vessel that can be filled with 
symbolic power by literally anyone who wants to, whether you're the right or the left, whether you're the government, whether you're social groups of any particular orientation politically or community community work or whatever it might be. So it's very, everyone's really aware of the, the fact that it can be used. The problem for Duque is that there hasn't been a great deal of success. And again, if you don't really have that success, that sense of pride, that sense of pleasure, it's very difficult to, to use in that kind of way. He certainly has uh, attempted to use and has fairly successfully talked about uh, the successes that have come in different sports, Egan Bernal's win in the Tour de France being 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 the most amongst those, but also the 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 doubles win of of Robert Farah and um, I forgot his name, Cabal and Farah, the, the, the doubles partnership in tennis at Wimbledon was another major moment. I mean, Alva uh, Duque even tweeted about the Colombian underwater rugby team winning the World Championships in that sport, which is ridiculous. But you know, but then any success is, is worth is worth championing. So. I mean, maybe that'll be my next article, you know, nation building and underwater rugby. Um, but yeah, so so he's attempted to, but it's it's just Colombia's national team hasn't done very well. And there's been a, a few controversies as well. I mean, the most important of these, which actually I think is an article that I'm kind of mapping at the moment, is, is Colombia's failed uh, hosting of the 2021 Copa America. And again, any, as you know, you know, these mega tournaments are a really great moment for nation branding, for portraying the country, for talking about the nation in a positive stead. The, 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 the host team tends to do quite well. So that idea of success is a good way of, you know, uh, gauging support of the nation. But unfortunately for Duque, he has a dual problem of COVID and the handling of, of COVID has been one problem. But even a bigger problem was the, the, the social protests that were going in major cities in Colombia for most of May and into June of this year. Um, and what was incredibly interesting, which is something that really hasn't happened in Colombia before, was that the public was saying no to the Copper America due to the fact they thought this would be another opportunity for Duque to kind of wash away the problems of the government, to, to kind of hide the atrocities that have been committing, committed by the ESMAD and the public forces against people who are protesting there are various stories about this so suddenly you see people saying you know without without uh, without peace there can be no football and there are you know so and duke is kind of caught in the middle he's very keen to host it because obviously there are certain benefits uh, but equally he maybe doesn't want to host it because there is the threat of i suppose the world's cameras having a look and you know coming and seeing what's going on and what had happened uh, in kind of late May was that there had been two Copa Libertadores games, um, one in Pereira and, and one in, in Barranquilla. And there had been protesters outside the stadium. There's a very, there's a very kind of huge image of uh, the, the players on the pitch, including Marcelo Gallardo, kind of choking as the kind of tear gas is, is wafting into the stadium and affecting the players. And you can hear gunshots going in the background. So suddenly you have a really you know, a really awful image of the protests actually affecting an empty stadium, the tear gas, these gunshots. And it's not very long after that that the, the, the tournament's taken away from Colombia and goes to Brazil. So this is a, a kind of a, a failure by the Duque government and almost and it stands in comparison to 2001, which was the previous time that Colombia had hosted the Copa America. And what was interesting there is that this was, there was, there'd been various FARC attacks, there'd been various terrorist attacks in the cities the, the head of the, the, sorry, the vice president of the Colombian Football Federation of being kidnapped. And again, the tournament was about to be taken away because of the fears of security. But, you know, the Pastrana managed to fight for it to stay there. The FARC said they weren't going to do anything, so it was okay. The TV company said, no, we can't host anywhere else because we've already invested the money. 
And the Colombian people rally behind the government and they say, no, we have to host it. We have to make Colombia look good. We have to make this the best cup. We're going to support everyone. We're going to not, there's going to be no problems. We're going to support Honduras. We're going to support Costa Rica, you know, and, and we're going to make it a party. We're going to show you what Colombia is. So there's this really interesting kind of comparison with 20 years ago when the nation rallies around against the FARC and against, I suppose, a lot of the things that maybe they'd been arguing for with social justice and land reform. And then 20 years later, there are these kind of social protests which are demanding that the Copper America shouldn't be held there. So those kind of things and the failure to host the, 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 the World Cup, the Women's World Cup in 2023, Colombia had bid for that, but they, they lost the bidding process amid various controversies with one of the managers, one of the directors of Deportes Tolima, talking about uh, women's football being a, a breeding ground for lesbianism. Um, we have various controversies uh, about uh, mistreatment of female players by, by Colombian coaches. Um, so there was, there was a lot of negative publicity that surrounded these kind of attempts to host major tournaments with all those kind of nation branding opportunities they provided. So, so Duque has really been stymied in, in most areas in an attempt to use football anyway for for a kind of continued process of sporting nationalism and, and political legitimization. The FARC disbanded in 2019, but dissidents remain active. How optimistic are you about Colombia's future now? It's, it's difficult to be really optimistic, um, just because I think that many of the structural issues that really are behind the violence in, in, you know, throughout Colombian society are still, are still present. Um, you know, we're looking at, this year, but actually pretty much at the moment is the five year anniversary of, of peace process. As we record, there's been various events going on about that um, around Colombia and globally. Um, and it's 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 you know, if you look at what's been implemented, there is there has not been an implementation that has been particularly impressive. Uh, Duque and Alvaro Ribe, his kind of political sponsor, had really been very harsh critics and had said that they were going to rip it, the peace process to shreds before the election. You can't say that's happened. That hasn't happened. But certainly I think you can argue that a lot of it hasn't been. There hasn't been a very strong will to implement a lot of it. Um, there has been an obstruction of certain processes, uh, particularly to do with the transitional justice and support for victims. But I think you can also say that a lot of it may not be the fault of the government either. I mean, the resources that the Colombian government has to be able to put towards uh, you know, crop, uh, crop redistribution, for example, or reducing the coca plantations and give them alternatives and viable opportunities. You know, they don't have enough money to do that. I think that that's been a struggle throughout Colombia's history. There, there is a reason why there is facilities and infrastructure lacking in much of the country. And that's been a real problem. I think COVID has obviously had a, a huge impact as well. I mean, I think that's been, you know, an excuse that's been used, but it, but it has had a significant impact on a country that isn't wealthy in lots of ways. Um, the problem is, I think, and there's some very good writers, uh, I think Porch and Rasmussen have talked about how the, pe the previous peace process in Colombia haven't solved things. They've really transitioned the violence. They've transitioned the conflict in, into a new phase. And I think that's really what's happened here. You know, instead of the FARC demobilizing completely, um, you know, others, you know, some have drifted away, some have found options legally. Uh, there was a, a famously a team of far, former FARC soldiers who competed in the World Rafting Championships in, our, in Australia, which is a great success uh, for, for the kind of the programme. And there have been breweries and clothing companies set up, but equally others haven't found the opportunities. 
um, and have probably drifted back into the conflict, whether that is with the far distant groups, whether that's with drug cartels, whether that's with the ELN uh, or other organisations because of the expertise they have. And again, the structures that are, are there in the country, the inequality, the lack of um, the lack of, you know, of the, well, the poverty means that the drug trade in particular is, is very is, is, is still a real key concern. So the, the, the root causes of violence in much of the country are, are still there. Um, and, you know, the peace agreement hasn't been able to solve that. The state hasn't been able to fill the void where the FARC were uh, and create the opportunities, create the infrastructure. The void is being filled in certain areas and fought over in certain areas by some of the actors or at least different forms of the actors that have been there for for decades. I think that, you know, we'll see next year is the is the presidential election. Uh, we'll see who, who wins. Again, it's, it's already been a highly controversial, highly highly charged um, contest through various coalitions that are kind of trying to, to work together. It seems unlikely at this stage that someone from the Central Democratico, Duque Uribe's party, is, is, is likely to, to get in. Uh, Petro, kind of a left-wing alternative who, who lost the election last time around, again, is a leading contender, but he is, you know, by much of the, of the, of the Colombian nation seen as unelectable, uh, much as Jeremy Corbyn is, uh, except that, except that um, Petro was actually a good year for, for, for several years in the M19. So, it, so it's very difficult to see. I mean, the, the election will change the landscape to some extent, but what happens really in Bogotá and in the political centres of power doesn't actually extend to much of the kind of more rural, peripheral border countries where Venezuela is a huge problem, where, you know, where there are drug cartels who are very highly operative around, around some of the poor areas of Nariño and, and Chocó, for example, as well, and the, the Darien Peninsula. So, so a lot of those problems are, are going to remain, are going to remain for a long time. So I'm not hugely optimistic, but a new government might at least put more effort and more emphasis on that peace process and try to put more of it into operation. So it is a little bit of a wait and see. Well, that's an incredibly sad note to end on. But at the same time, you know what? There was a tiny bit of optimism there. So um, as you say, wait and see. Pete, that was an absolutely phenomenal chat. Thank you ever so much. Really informative, brilliant. And um, I'm convinced what listeners will engage with it and enjoy it. And um, if anyone listened to this, would like to engage with you and your work. What's the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh, yeah, probably the best way is on Twitter. Um, I'm at Pedro El Profesor um, on Twitter. Um, normally wittering about about uh, Colombian football, occasionally about cricket, probably not very positively about the Ashes, um, and occasionally about ice hockey and other various things as well. But yeah, get me on there. Or alternatively, you can look me up and, and email me. Uh, I think my email is on the University of Leeds uh, Spanish department pages. So either of those is a, a great way of getting in touch. And always great to hear from people and, and engage. So, yeah. We will leave your contact details on the episode notes. And it remains for me to say thanks ever so much, Pete. And hopefully we will chat with you on this podcast again at some point in the future. Love to. Thanks very much, guys. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed being on, this, on the podcast. Mm-hmm.